It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Makai Becton, ladies and gentlemen, human beings that large should not run as fast as Makai Becton did. And if you like people just abusing other humans, the Makai Becton tape is for you. Denzel Mims with another monster score of 70 yards. Quick pass to Crowder trying to get him out of the space. Slopes a tackle, and there he goes. Crowder, it's a foot race, and Crowder is in there. A 69-yard touchdown. Donald escapes, trying to buy himself some time. Fires, end zone, it's caught. Incredible play by Donald. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. And it's the Q-inator. Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studio, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And today is Friday, so a very odd day to be doing this. Normally, we'd call it midweek with Manish. This is sort of midweek if you think about it, only because the Jets have an off week. So even though it's not in the middle of this week, it's sort of in the middle of the bye. Manish Mehta covering the Jets for the New York Daily News. Manish, I hear that your clock management at home is quite lacking, and so you might actually fit in well with the New York Jets coaching staff. First of all, it was very creative uh, in terms of uh, describing why we're doing the podcast at the end of the week as opposed to in the middle of the week. Yeah, I think you're technically right. It's probably the midpoint between the two games. Uh, and as far as the clock management goes, uh, I know there's a, a segment of the fan base is, is happy that the Jets handled the final minute or so of the game on Monday night the way that they did because it ultimately helped them lose. But uh, you know, if you're just looking at this in a vacuum, uh, when the Jets uh, – you know, found themselves in a 27-27 game and, and got the ball back on, on their final drive of the game. Uh, I thought it was curious uh, the a day afterwards. Somebody alerted me to this uh, later in the in the night after the game that they they kind of boggled the the the, the, the time management. Uh, I hadn't noticed it to, to be quite honest with you in real time because uh, I was in the middle of writing, so I, it, it escaped me. But the Jets on that third and seven with uh, about a minute 20 left in the game. They snapped the ball with 17 seconds left on the 40-second play clock. And people would say, well, hey, you know, it's a tie game. You're on your own 29-yard line. You have to get yourself in a a position where you could possibly kick a field goal to win it at the end of regulation. But I think if you looked at it closer, and, uh, you know, the Jets and virtually every team in the league has somebody to help out the head coach uh, in situations like this, usually somebody up in the booth, If you looked at it closer, the Jets really should have uh, allowed that play clock to get down to, you know, one or two seconds before Joe Flacco snapped it. Because if they did, they would have essentially cut about 15 seconds off the game clock. So instead of punting with 55 seconds to go, because Flacco threw an interception, sorry, an incompletion on third and seven, uh, the Jets would have punted with 40 seconds to go. So 40 seconds instead of 55 seconds, that would have left the Patriots with very little time to get into field goal range for Nick Falk like they ultimately did. Uh, you know, people will say, well, you need those seconds if you're on offense because what if you convert the first down? Uh, the bottom line is that even if they snap the ball with one or two seconds left on the play clock instead of 17 seconds on the play clock and got the first down on third and seven, all they had to do was go about 30, 35 yards in about 40, 45 seconds with two timeouts remaining to get in 
uh, Sergio Castillo's field goal range. Uh, he had made a 50-yarder earlier in the night. He had made a 55-yarder a couple weeks ago. So it would have been within his range. It, it's just uh, poor game management, poor clock management. Obviously, that falls ultimately on Adam Gase. But uh, I believe he does have someone who, who helps him out with that. So I think, uh, you know, in the heat of the moment, uh, you know, things are frantic at the end of the game. You would expect your head coach and uh, the people in charge of the clock management to kind of have a level head and see through all of that. Uh, and they didn't do it. And I, I know, again, fans are extremely happy <laughs> that they lost the game and the clock management contributed to that. But, uh, you know, for all the the you know, discussion, debate, criticism that Gase has gotten for his play calling and his play development and, uh, you know, having a, a heavy hand in Sam Donald regressing, I think that clock management ha- has been, you know, one of his weaknesses. And I know it happened last year, I believe, in Miami as well. So uh, just another piece to the puzzle. Uh, and upon further reflection, when I got a chance to look at it, it's amazing to me how something so simple was overlooked by this team. The good news is that regardless of the clock management, whether the Patriots scored or not to win that game, if you bet on it, you would have won if you bet on the Jets because they covered the spread for only the second time this season. Now, you can't bet on the Jets this week because, as we said before, Manish, they are off, but you can bet on a full slate of games in both college football and the NFL over at my bookie you can also bet on mma ufc whatever you want there's prop bets in all these games anything your heart desires it's all there at my bookie sign up now and when you do use the promo code overtime and you'll get your deposit matched halfway all the way up to a thousand bucks so if you bet 200 they'll match your deposit up to 100 this goes up to a thousand which would be a match of 500 bucks Full slate of games Saturday for college football. Full slate of games Sunday for the NFL. Can't bet on the Jets, but you can bet on any other team you want. It's all there at MyBookie. Remember, sign up, use the promo code OVERTIME, and get your deposit matched halfway all the way up to 1000 bucks. Manish, I'm curious to know if the clock management situation that you just brought up was mentioned at all when Adam Gase addressed the media this week. I know he spoke to the media, as did Sam Darnold. What did they have to say? Uh, A few issues were brought up because there were a few issues down the stretch, the 12th man on the field, the defensive play call that resulted in the wide-open receiver on that game-winning drive by the Patriots. But the final minute uh, and how that was handled was not addressed. Uh, You know, The headliner moving forward, obviously, is... Sam Darnold's availability moving forward after the bye week. And uh, Darnold, you know, he's optimistic by nature. Uh, Obviously, his shoulder did not feel right, and he made sure that the coaches and doctors and trainers were, uh, uh, you know, uh, had a peek into his brain, uh, and he he was pretty forthright about that, and that's why he didn't play. Uh, And so even though he's optimistic about his chances of playing after the bye week against the Chargers, I just don't you know, I, I don't think it makes much sense unless he is completely pain-free, you know, to which people will say, you know, we're talking about uh, mid-late November, how many NFL players are pain-free. I just think at this stage, uh, Sam Darnold really needs to look out for himself. Uh, I don't believe that the team is looking out for him for a number of different reasons, and, you know, we've talked about it for months now in terms of not giving him enough playmakers, uh, allowing him to play when he initially got hurt to come back into that Denver game, allowing him to come back after he got hurt a second time in the Chiefs game, a fourth-quarter blowout. Uh, you know, different people have different motivations. I just think at this point, 
Uh, I don't think anyone would ever accuse Sam Darnold of being somebody who doesn't care about his team or doesn't care about his teammates. But you have to look at the big picture here. And the Jets will be more than willing to move on from Sam Darnold if they have the opportunity to draft Trevor Lawrence with the number one pick and perhaps move on from him if they have the opportunity to draft Justin Fields, the Ohio State quarterback, with the second pick in the draft. So he has to be selfish in this instance. And when I say selfish, I mean make sure he is fully healthy. If that means missing the Chargers game, so be it. If that means missing uh, the following game against the Dolphins, so be it. If it means missing the next month and only being available for the last few games of the season, so be it. He has to look out for his long-term health. Uh, I don't think, frankly, that his draft capital, uh, if the Jets were looking to trade him, I don't think his stock is going to markedly change. Because just think about this logically. If he plays extremely well, for the final seven games, if he's available for those seven games, plays and plays extremely well, you'd be hard-pressed to find a scenario where the Jets lose all seven of those games. So in that scenario, if he's playing really well, the Jets probably won't even be in position to draft Lawrence or Fields. But if he plays extremely poorly, uh, they potentially will be in position to have the first or second overall pick. And in that scenario, if he's playing poorly, uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't see how that benefits him. He has a value uh, for teams around the league. You know, based on his pedigree, the number three overall pick, based on his age, 23 years old, and based on what we have seen already to this point, I don't really think what he is going to do over the last seven games is going to change how other teams who need quarterbacks this offseason view him. And I, So I don't think his trade value will be any different now than it is after the season because the only way that he could skyrocket is if he plays exceptionally well and if he plays exceptionally well the Jets are going to win games and not going to want to trade him because they won't have a be in position to draft the next quarterback so I I just think he needs to be really smart I know it's frustrating you know he's missed three games now in each of his first three seasons the Jets have lost all nine games uh and and that frustrates him I know that not being out there just generally speaking frustrates him as it would any competitor but you really have to be smart and sit this one out and make sure he's completely healthy. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, I suspect you know, he'll miss maybe the Charger game, but really push to get back to the Dolphin game. We'll see. Uh, but that's really the headliner for the, the following seven games. Now we can talk about the rookies who are going to get playing time, and those are all important elements for this organization moving forward. But the biggest storyline is really you know, what happens with Sam Darnold uh, what is his future, and what's the team's ultimate move regarding keeping him or trading him? Along those lines, we should probably talk about what Adam Schefter said on the Monday Night Football broadcast before the game started as far as Sam Darnold and the Trevor Lawrence rumors. A lot of people have been spreading around the possibility of Trevor Lawrence either going back to Clemson or demanding a trade if the Jets were to get the number one pick. Adam Schefter seemed to indicate that the belief around the league is that Trevor Lawrence will do neither one of those things, that he will enter the draft and whoever gets the number one pick will draft him and he will play for them. The other thing that Schefter seemed to indicate is that his belief from talking to people around the league is that the Jets are likely to not get a first-round pick for Sam Darnold and rather they would get something similar to what the Dolphins gave up for Josh Rosen, which would be a two and a five. Where do you stand on both of these? I know that you talk to people all the time around the league. Have you heard similar things about Trevor Lawrence and about what the Jets could get for Sam Darnold? I think there's a lot of variables at play. Uh, 
and yes, I've talked to front office executives and general managers of teams who need quarterbacks and teams who are perfectly fine and in really good position and set there, uh, really who have no you know, dog in the fight uh, or no reason to not be completely forthright about what they believe Sam Darnold's value is. And uh, I think first and foremost, what needs to be said is that there is going to be a good market for uh, Joe Douglas. When he's looking to trade Sam Darnold, if it gets to that point, it's not as if he's going to have to desperately call, you know, 15 teams and say, Hey, can, you know, what will you give us for this guy? There's going to be an opportunity for there to be, you know, for lack of a better phrase, a bidding war. Now that's all relative, of course, but there's going to be multiple suitors. Uh, when I say multiple, I mean probably at least three to four serious suitors, uh, probably even more uh, beyond that. Uh, but look, you have to look at what the draft order is going to be because let's just say for argument's sake, the Jets have the first pick in the draft. Uh, they were looking for trade Sam Darnold. Let's say the Jacksonville Jaguars have the number two pick in the draft. So you take the Jaguars out of the equation. They're not trading for Sam Darnold. They're going to draft uh, the quarterback that they feel is best on the board with that pick. So that's a team that technically needs a quarterback, but then it won't be a serious suitor for Darnold in any kind of trade. And then it depends on the North Dakota State kid. I, I don't know exactly how every team feels about him, uh, but if there's a quarterback needy team up early in that draft that likes that kid, you take that team out of the equation as well. All that being said, there's going to be enough teams who are going to make offers uh, or are going to have trade discussions with Joe Douglas for Sam Darnold. And ideally, of course, the Jets would want a first-round pick. And ideally, any team that wants Sam Darnold is not going to want to trade a first-round pick. They'll you know, be willing to trade, in all likelihood, a second-round pick and a day-three pick. Uh, the gray area and something that none of us knows, you know, months before the draft is what are the competing offers and how, you know, how much does one team covet Sam Darnold? Because if you're in a situation uh, as the Jets and you have three teams, for example, offering comparable deals, second round pick and a day three pick, uh, you need someone to kind of, you know, step up and like, make a, a deal that separates or an offer, I should say, that separates themselves from the competing offers. So if you're a club that really loves Darnold and is offered a second round pick and a day three pick and, and Joe Douglas comes back to you and says, Hey, look, you know, I, I've got similar offers on the table. Is there anything better you can do for me? And if you really like Darnold's potential and promise, and you're picking, for example, late in the first round, you say, you know what? screw it. Forget the second and day three. I'll give you a first round pick uh, or I'll give you a first round pick and a day three pick. Uh, you know, do we have a deal? That's how these things work when a player is coveted. And so Joe Douglas clearly would be the beneficiary of all that, but that's not something that he knows right now. That's not something that the teams who are considering uh, trading for a player like Darnold months from now really knows uh, it's just kind of like when you're buying a house, you know, you put your house up for sale for $300,000. You hope you get as close to asking as possible. Next thing you know, you got four people who offer you, you know, full price, full asking price of 300,000. And you know, that it's going to take more than that. And then somebody who falls in love with that house says, you know what, I'm going to go well over asking. I'm going to give, I'll give you 310,000. And then you take it. So I think that's, very similar to what happens in deals like this when you have a player who's going to have a real market. So, uh, you know, ultimately, Jets would love a first-round pick. 
could they settle on just a, a two and a late a late rounder potentially, uh, or could it, another team who's desperate say, yeah, we want to give up a two, but we don't want to lose him, and we know that uh, we could because there are other offers similar to this, so we'll bump it up to a one. Yeah, that could happen as well. So you know, just a lot of unknowns at this point, but uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, the Jets are going to get a good. A good return, not the number three pick in the draft return, but still a good enough return for for Joe Douglas and the, and the organization. Manish, I think the headline from what you just said is that if this sports writer thing doesn't work out for you, you might have a nice career in real estate. So keep that in mind. Manish Mehta selling houses <laughs> all over the Northeast and talking about houses. Let's talk about somebody who's as big as a house. That, of course, is Mackay Becton. He came out of the game on Monday night. Where do we stand with his health? And also Brian Poole, who left the game on Monday night, too. Well, I thought the Jets made the smart decision when uh, Mackay Becton was complaining of uh, chest issues. Specifically, he was having difficulty breathing. They took him out of the game, and uh, most importantly, they did not put him back in the game because when you're dealing with something like that, you really need time to fully evaluate what's going on. It's not every day where a player says he's having difficulty breathing and it's not a situation where he just got the wind knocked out of him. Now, it's not a muscular issue as far as the Jets know, but I really do think just given, again, where the Jets are this season, they're they're in the middle of a a game at 0-8. Who cares if Mekhi Becton... Uh, would have been safe to return after complain, complaining about breathing. Uh, you, you really need to evaluate and monitor him uh, the next day, the day after that. Now the Jets have the benefit of time now because of the bye week, so they're going to monitor him throughout the course of this bye week, throughout the, the course of next week in the run-up to the Chargers game to determine whether he can play. They're obviously hopeful that he can play, but I thought they did the right thing. It's, it is absolutely the right thing to do. Frustrating, sure, for the player, uh, and maybe he's fine, and maybe there is no real issue, uh, you know, long term. But you can't chance it. First and foremost, for the for the person, for the player, you cannot chance his health. Uh, and then, secondly, from a football perspective, who cares? You know, you're 0 and 8. This guy's an invaluable piece to your future. And uh, if there's anything that potentially could be a miss, you need to fully check it out. And you can't fully check it out during the course of a game. You you need uh, more than one day. You need several days. You need a week. You might need a week and a half. You might need more time than that. Whatever it is. So if, if Makai Becton isn't right for the Chargers game, I mean, I, I can't imagine that a Jet fan would truly care because what matters most is his long-term health. What matters most is diagnosing exactly what happened and figuring out why he was having difficulty breathing. And that's something that they're just going to monitor between now and next week's game. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Manish, last order of business. Adam Gase decided that he wanted to put his stamp on the game on Monday night and call a play that would end things for the Patriots. Unfortunately for him, it actually ended up turning the game completely around and spurred the Patriots' comeback. What happened there? It's ironic because uh, you know the uh, the Patriots you know are cut into that ten point fourth quarter lead. Uh, a fairly long drive, and then on the first play of the ensuing Jets drive, Joe, du- uh, Joe Douglas, <laughs> uh, n- not Joe Douglas, Joe Flacco <laughs> throws deep into double coverage and gets picked off by J.C. Jackson. And uh, the talk for the past several weeks has been about how Adam Gase has given Dow Loggins uh, play-calling duties. Uh, my understanding is that Adam Gase actually called that play, the deep shot. And, and frankly, I don't have an issue with the play call itself. 
And, and Gase was asked about that uh, the day after the game, and he said, you've got to be aggressive in this league to win. I, I agree with him. I, I love that mindset. I love the killer mindset because what have we done too many times when it comes to Gase over the past year and a half? He's timid. You know, he doesn't go for it on fourth down, or if he goes for it on fourth down, he, you know, he has this weirdo play call, this uh, you know, odd, uh, unconventional play call. He, I, I don't uh, – maybe it's just me – but I never got a sense to this point that he's had that go-for-it killer mentality, that aggressive, you know, we have a chance to put this game away, so let's do it type of attitude. And I love that attitude. I think that's, you know, you know there's a fine line, obviously, between being aggressive and being reckless. Uh, and in hindsight, the play blew up because the ball was thrown in the double coverage. Uh, you saw the tight end open in the flat for probably a 20, 30-yard gain. Uh, even the check down, the running back was open underneath. So Joe Flacco did not make the proper decision. The play call, however, uh, was Adam Gase's decision. And and fans, ironically, are thankful for that because, as you said, there's a, a, you know, a large segment of the fan base that did not want them to win this game. And clearly, uh, you know, that play call contributed to it. Obviously, the decision by the quarterback – decision uh, contributed to it as well uh, but I didn't have a, a, an issue with the play call I actually like the play call uh, I think at that point it's incumbent upon the quarterback to understand what's happening and you know not take an unnecessary risk so calling the play I, I thought was something that I you know would would agree to you know I, I criticized Adam Gase a billion times over the past year and a half as everyone knows I didn't have a problem with the play call uh I had a problem with the ultimate decision-making by the quarterback, which is unfortunate because Joe Flacco had played so well for three quarters. Uh, and obviously uh, everyone uh, who doesn't uh, really subscribe to the Tank for Trevor uh, campaign had a problem with the execution. I have bad news for the Tank for Trevor crowd because the Jets have just made a move that is going to turn their entire season around. They claim Corey Ballantyne off waivers. Glad you mentioned that, Scott. Not because... I think Corey Ballantyne is going to make a significant impact for the Jets for the remainder of the season or beyond, but because there was a play late in the Monday night game on the Patriots' game-tying drive in which a Jet cornerback had one of the worst efforts that I can remember seeing, uh, at least in the last decade or so. It was on a 31-yard completion from Cam Newton to Bird, a catch-and-run in which Pierre Desir was in coverage, uh, after Bird made the catch, he essentially ran across the field down to the three-yard line and ultimately set up Newton's uh, game-tying one-yard touchdown. But if you watched that play closely and just followed Desir, uh, he never got a hand on Bird in coverage, and he essentially jogged or loafed. I I'm not exactly sure what the right way to characterize it is, but he did not give full effort, and it's so obvious. It's almost as if he was taking a stroll through the park as he jogged across the field and Bird was... <laughs> Killing yard, you know, uh, moving down to the, to the three yard line. It, it was really unbelievable. I've watched that play a dozen or so times, and uh, it reminds me of a play several years ago in uh, Darrell Revis's final season. I believe it was Cleveland. I could be wrong on the opponent, but uh, you know, Revis gave very minimal effort. And then when Revis ended up resurfacing in Kansas City in a playoff game against the Titans, uh, I remember Derrick Henry was running to the corner. He, he turned the corner, and Darrell Revis kind of just let him run by. It was reminiscent of that type of play. It just was not a professional effort. It, it's, it's embarrassing. It's inexcusable. I can't.
can't imagine that Greg Williams was pleased about that. And frankly, I don't know what's going to happen uh, when the Chargers game rolls around. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me if Desir doesn't play that much. And if he does play and start, I would be surprised because, again, that's, you know, that's not what this team needs. That type of effort is, is laughable. And, and as far as I know, Pierre Desir you know, wasn't injured. He wasn't uh, you know, jogging because uh, there was some kind of physical ailment. It's just a lack of effort. And, and that's not uh, what this team should be about. Uh, I, I think even fans – you know who who wanted them to lose this game. You know, in the moment, were proud of Pierre Desir doing that. But ultimately, that that can't be the mindset of any player in this organization if they're ever going to have an opportunity to turn things around and become relevant. Manish Mehta covering the Jets for the New York Daily News. Thanks for joining us. As always, really appreciate it. I don't know what you're working on in the Daily News right now, Manish, but I do know that your favorite song is Rockwell's "Somebody's Watching Me." <laughs> I guess you're referring to the hidden cameras in the jet locker room, Scott. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see any cameras in here. <laughs> Apparently, nobody knows. Uh, uh, no, look, it was an interesting story uh, that came to my attention last uh, last week. In late October, the NFL Players Association was informed by jet players that there were cameras in the locker room. So the NFLPA went directly to the league. Uh, the league went to the team and discussed whatever they needed to discuss and found that the Jets had done nothing wrong and uh, players knew about the cameras, uh, which is not true because the only reason the NFLPA knew about it was because players alerted them to it. Uh, it's, it it's an interesting discussion because about, I don't know, a month and a half or so ago, the league and the PA agreed to cameras being installed in team facilities for COVID-19 purposes. So to monitor players, making sure they're socially distanced, ma- making sure they're wearing masks. But those cameras that were newly installed in team facilities were in common areas, public areas, you know, lunchroom, uh, field house. You know, I, don't, I don't know exactly where they are in the jet facility, but the cameras were not meant to be placed in the locker room. What's interesting about the jet situation is that these cameras that were in the locker room that are hidden, they've been there since 2008 when the Jets facility opened, when they moved from Long Island. So they've been there for 12 years. So you'd have to think, you know, they've been there for that long. Obviously, uh, the players were told about it, right? So I asked a number of players throughout the decade, from that first team in 2008 all the way up through the current team in 2020. And I asked, hey, look, did the team tell you about these cameras? Did you know about the cameras? And I could not find one player that knew about it. Now, the team contends that they're there for – security reasons, and there have been players in the past who uh, alerted them to, you know, missing, uh, I don't know, missing personal items, uh, I don't know if it was jewelry, money, you know, a wallet, uh, shoes, I, I, you know, I don't know what exactly what it was, but those players who alerted the team that they were missing something or something was stolen had an opportunity to look at their surveillance cameras. So I don't doubt for a second that there were some players over the course of 12 years who were... Uh, aware that the cameras existed and who talked to team officials about the cameras. Uh, I just don't believe, I mean, it can't be because literally every player that I spoke to wasn't aware of it. There are hundreds of players that come through that building over the past 12 years. There's been 20 plus players who have been on this team since the start of training camp and some of them who are still on the team, some of them who are not. So 
you know, I think the NFLPA position is that the cameras in the locker room should be a collectively bargained issue. And it's not in the collective bargaining agreement. There are players who are uncomfortable with that. Now, Greg Van Roten, who is currently the team's uh, player association rep, said that he doesn't believe that the cameras are there to spy and that the players were aware of it. Now, I don't doubt, again, that some players were aware of it. One of the players who I spoke to said that he actually uh, sat in on a conversation at lunch with two teammates, and, it, and one of the two teammates was talking about the possibility of cameras being in the, in the locker room, and the player that I spoke to had no idea and was incredulous. Uh, and I also spoke to former players from years back, from a few years back, who had no idea. And these are guys who have been on the team for more than a cup of coffee. They've been on the team for uh, for years. They had no idea that there were cameras, and they were particularly they weren't particularly happy with it. Uh, I just think it's odd. And I look at this just logically. If you are there at placing cameras in ostensibly to protect the players, why wouldn't you a you put up signage, you know, in the locker room, right outside the locker room, uh, saying that hey, this area is under video surveillance. That would be a deterrent if you are someone who's going to steal something from a player's locker, whether you're a player who's going to steal something from another player's locker, whether you're, whether you're an equipment manager, someone who has you know, regular access to that locker room, uh, if you're willing to steal something, you would be deterred knowing that the area is under video surveillance. And then secondly, and perhaps most importantly, why not just make the cameras easily available uh, or easily like visible, I should say. Instead, these cameras are hidden in... <laughs> In smoke detectors, I have a picture uh, of one of the cameras that are hidden in smoke detectors. So if the cameras are there truly to protect the players and to be used as a deterrent for someone to steal uh, belongings in the locker room, why are you hiding them? Because if, if that's the case, you know, if, if, if you're doing it because you want to catch somebody. That's not a deterrent. The goal should be, you know, we don't want anyone to steal anything. And if that's what the Jets are saying is their position, I just don't know why logically they would be hidden. I, I don't get that. It doesn't make any logical sense. And right now, the Players Association and the league are discussing how best to move forward. The league does not think it's a big deal. The Players Association respectfully disagrees. Uh, I, I just don't, I, I don't get it. And the notion that players were told about it, uh, no one's actually come out and said that. Greg Van Roten did not say that. He said that the, the players were aware of it. I think he's right in that some players were aware of it. Not every player was aware of it. And the team was never told by a team official that they actually exist. It was always like just kind of conversation, you know, guys joking around to some degree, guys wondering, you know, are there cameras here? Is that a camera? Nobody officially told them. There was actually a team meeting uh, when the new cameras were placed for COVID protocol reasons. There was a team meeting earlier in the season and the Jets, uh, never got any definitive answer whether they're actually locker room cameras. Uh, and again, players who have been through this organization over the past 12 years, not one of them told me that the team informed them of any cameras. So uh, just an, un an unnecessary thing in my estimation. To me, there's an easy fix. Just get rid of the cameras and the problem is gone. You, know, you can try to explain it away as, as best as you can from an organizational standpoint, but I think the resolution is fairly fairly clear, which is get rid of the cameras and there won't be any kind of question about why they're there and why they're hidden. 
Here's what Greg Van Roten had to say. He is the NFL PA player rep in the Jets locker room. He said that the players knew the cameras were there. Looks like the players were concerned that the league could use the cameras to find them for not wearing masks in the locker room with everything going on with coronavirus. So take everything and make your own judgment on this story. We will talk next week, Manish. In the meantime, make sure that you're following Manish on Twitter and reading his work in the Daily News. If you haven't given us a five-star review on iTunes yet, if you could go ahead and do that for us, really appreciate it. Easy way to help out the show if you like what we're doing. Doesn't take you much time, doesn't cost you any money, but it goes a long way to help us out. So if you could go ahead and do that for us, we'd be quite grateful. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and turnonthejets.com.